I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die all right, and welcome to The Left is Dead. I am James Carey, as always, here with my co-host, Jake Anderson. How you doing, man? What up? I'm good. Good enough. How are you? I'm good. I'm investing a bunch of money in NFTs right now. Oh, great. Yeah. I, uh, I know that people are very thrilled about the state of blockchain and its ecological effects. That's a certainly an understandable fatigue well i have a jpeg i'll sell you for ten thousand dollars right. only you would have the ownership of it so it's a picture on your it's a file on your computer that's worth 10 grand somehow right. would you be interested no wow. I will, for what it's worth i'll say this yes the current state of cryptocurrency and blockchain is problematic for sure, but future generations of blockchain will be will depart from from the current. And it's also important to realize that yes, uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain are producing to uh, you know carbon emissions and whatnot, but it's still pales in comparison to the major industries that that are out there. So it's, you know, it's good to see the forest for the trees. I just think it's um, ridiculous that we've reached a point where there's literally people selling nothing. Well, you yeah, know what I mean? some, some of these NFT things are, yeah, these are getting ridiculous. Like but... that 69 million for that Beeple collage. That's just like a JPEG. But so where are we at here in terms of uh, with political events and, you know, for example, where are we at with uh, the Democrats and is that going to tie into what we're talking about tonight? What are we talking about tonight? Actually? I mean, tonight, actually, we're going down, I guess, sort of the right wing path again, but we are discussing uh, the history of what I guess you'd know is like the wider evangelical movement um the type of people who go in the oval office and lay hands on the president and stuff we're talking about the rise of that as a political movement and a voting block with um our guest who's an independent researcher and a friend of mine nathan sackett right so this is going to be kind of a uh kind of a uh, not gloves off i'm sure it won't get i'm sure we're going to be largely in agreement on things but just an analysis of how uh, religious fanaticism has factored into politics? Yeah, basically. Think of this more as, you know, of a history episode, I guess. Yeah. Not so much. In, uh, uh, we're going to, you know, we want to talk about, we've talked to people who are like these weird outgrowths of evangelical Protestantism, like the Q people and, you know, a lot of right-wingers, people who love Trump but are evangelicals and things like that. Like, I mean, this is a big, they're obviously a big political force among, like, the white middle-class voting base of the Republican Party. 
Sure. And they Absolutely. they have been for a while, obviously. And uh, you know, I I'm, I'm keep trying to remember. I always forget the name. There was a Netflix documentary on it about this group, this religious group that has had way more power than most people know about. Oh, and the family or family. whatever. Yeah. I've been meaning to watch that. Do you know much about that? I started it, but I, I just, I didn't get too far into it and I forgot about it. I, but I know like, that's what I want to talk about is like, there is an outsized influence by like the evangelical community in the United States. You know, look at, I know like one example people bring up all the time is like textbooks because like Texas is the largest like buyer of textbooks that like a lot of textbooks for surrounding states and a lot of areas around the country are based on like Texas right-wing curriculum and things like that. And then beyond that, just the influence they have in the Republican party, like the Falwells and things like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think just generally speaking, no matter where you stand on religion, I, I'm not a religious person as we've spoken about before, but I mean, I, I think the, uh, <laughs> the like idea that you can uh kind of warp the minds of young people with you know just straight up propaganda i mean of course they think that the liberals are doing that in public schools too but i mean there there's just there's there's propaganda and then there's just straight lies and you know not teaching evolution not teaching sex education, abstinence only programs. You know, there's a very real way in which like uh, evangelical uh, religion is kind of a scourge, really. It's, yeah, it's zealotry. It's not really Christianity for one thing. And it's just like this weird, like, well, you know, we'll get into it when we talk in this interview, but it's this weird church of like a thousand prophets you know what i mean everyone has a personal relationship with god everyone's actions are like approved by their personal relationship and things like that it's a complicated like very american strain of religion it's very individualistic you yeah, can make it, yeah. it whatever you want yes it is individual it's that's that's what america's about is in it not just individualism and freedom so to speak but not i think it's more about selfishness and uh the ability to do whatever you want no matter what uh even if it infringes upon other people's rights which to me is not freedom that's tyranny well and that's yeah that's kind of the idea of like the church too it's there to like reinforce that where it's like well i have this unearned position you know or, or like i know other people have it worse but like i'm justified in having this because i have a personal relationship with god and clearly he wouldn't give me these things if I didn't deserve them. You understand? Like, right. Very like, like you said, it's self, this American, like self-centered and selfish attitude towards religion. Yeah. And, you know, I understand people think they have, you know, a personal connection to God that, you know, might make it difficult for them to, you know, understand that they're part of a larger world and that they have to, you know, uh, understand that not everyone plays by their rules. I mean, call it what you want, whether it's a personal connection to God or just um, you giving a different name to your 
serotonin and neurotransmitters in your head, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't, I, I've always believed it's bordering on child abuse to uh, indoctrinate your children with hardcore religious fanaticism at a young age. Um, I think it, it makes it very difficult for them to break out of it if they want to later. And a lot of people who do break out of it are very kind of fucked up about it. And wow. I just don't think it's right. I think you can present the idea. It's your, I mean, it's your kid. You can teach him what you want, but your kid is also an individual. And don't, I, I, don't you think they should have the right to, as they grow up, should, don't they, shouldn't they have some say in whether a completely unfiltered train of propaganda is embedded into their head during their most formative years. Uh, I, I think it's, it's not good. That would be fair. And I don't know if we'll get into it in the interview, but that was like early Protestantism, like early Lutherans. The idea was like, well, you get baptized as an adult when you choose whether you want to join the church or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but they're, they're still That's gone and it doesn't matter yeah because there's bible camps and all these like private schools and things like that where it's like you can just start from an early age indoctrinating your children yeah and i think it's just i think like the values that you want to teach your kids that you think are connected to religion are actually can be secular um you can teach all of the values that you that you value from religion teach them in a secular way. And then you can say, hey, look, me and your mother believe this, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what's important is to be a good person, blah, blah, blah. Like you don't need to be teaching your kid that they're gonna burn in hell forever if they don't accept Christ into their heart. And they're gonna burn in hell forever if, if they're gay, you know? Yeah. Like, that's, that's messed up. I don't care what anyone says. That is, that is severely messed up. And it's, it's obvious, but it's also, it's obviously messed up, but it's also very prevalent, especially in the South. Yeah, I think that'll come up in our interview. So why don't we go ahead and get into it at this point? So we'll be back on the other side of this. Go tell that long tongue liar. Oh, well, well, go tell that midnight rider. Oh, well, tell the gamble the ramblin' backbiter. Tell them gun of gonna cut them. Welcome back to The Left is Dead. Uh, once again, I'm Jim Carrey here with Jake Anderson, and we are joined by our guest, Nathan Sackett, informal labor researcher, independent researcher, uh, ex-evangelical, um, a friend of mine who, uh, I don't know, he posts a lot of interesting opinions on things, and we've had a lot of interesting discussions. And um, as an ex-evangelical, I thought we'd invite him on here tonight to kind of go through the history of evangelicals as a political movement so welcome nathan good to be here so um i don't know this is a big topic you know we've discussed so much of this in like personal conversations but i suppose you want to start out with what makes this country unique as far as the church goes as far as the people who founded it you know it was sort of rejects from the Anglican church who started the colonies here. What do you think gives this country from its founding, it's sort of unique religious character? 
Um, I just from like a Marxist perspective, I think the fact that you have a lot of yeoman farmers and uh, small artisans, I mean, in the north, and then you have this awful quasi-feudal slave society in the south. So what's happening in the New England colonies versus the middle colonies versus the southern colonies is different. Um, there's different denominational factors. And yet, at least in the northern uh, colonies, and to some extent in Virginia too, there's this sort of, I guess what a Marxist could call a petty bourgeois a uh, liberal society that is taking religious dissenters from the Anglican church. And uh, they, they pretty much form the uh, first great awakening. But it's also in a context where we don't know, we don't have good statistics on church attendance in the 1700s before the uh, Revolutionary War. Uh, but there is a good chunk of the population that are not only unchurched, but they're like drinking alcohol a lot. They're having a lot of illegitimate kids. Um, you can see this in the letters of John Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson. They're kind of freaking out about how crazy uh, people are in the cities. They could have just stayed Catholic but they could have done that no that's a, a another thing is like you have this weird mixture in like new england in that area of the sort of enlightenment like deism and sort of agnosticism and things like that you know i'm not quite sure how that like blends with the sort of anglo-saxon protestants who also occupied that area you know it makes for a strange um it makes for a strange combination as the country's starting off, but I think things really blow up when you like talk about westward expansion. You mentioned the the first Great Awakening, and do you want to kind of go into what the first and second Great Awakening periods were to some extent? Yeah, um, I'm not as familiar with the 1700s and 1800s, but what's interesting, I'll just go off what the uh, religious historian uh, David Bebbington talks. Uh, so in his 1980s book, he has a history of evangelicalism in modern Britain. And so I think in Britain, it was called the Great Evangelical Revival, while the simultaneous movements in the American colonies was called the Great Awakening, or at least that's how it came to be called. Um, so Bebbington has this quadrilateral sort of framework for explaining um, the first great awakening and these tendencies that are occurring across multiple denominations. Uh, during the first great awakening, you have uh, John Wesley and George Whitefield uh, forming the Methodist tendency, which becomes a, its own denomination. Uh, and that starts in Britain and comes over to the United States. Um, they're intermixing with German missionaries, uh, German uh, pietists, and also what are called Moravians. They kind of have an emphasis on the body and the passions. And they also have an emphasis on personal experience that becomes disconnected from liturgical traditions of the Anglican church or the Catholics and what. Yeah. I think that's 
of what we should really dive into because that's where the big change comes you know right. that's that and i jake and i talked a little bit about it in the intro but that's that the personal relationship with you know your understanding of christ or god and that leads to um mixed with you know the individualism of the united states that leads to the sort of tendencies we see now but initially it started off with and i don't know how to explain this and i don't know what made the switch but protestant forces in like the 19th century you know were the progressive forces like abolitionists and things like that so i'm not quite sure how this individualism and this personal relationship kind of switched where do you think uh, i mean what's the evolution from a sort of progressive force I, maybe it's immigrants becoming naturalized but what's the evolution from sort of a progressive force mm. towards a more reactionary one? Oh man that's a probably a long time coming and man it's interesting so like the first and second great awakenings have a lot of progressive potentials in the sense that they are for example in the Presbyterian church there's a split between the old school and new school or sometimes they called the old light and new light splits where the new school wants pastors to have a lot more freedom to just show up at random places and preach uh itinerant uh preaching and the sort of uh church bureaucracy wanted to control that more they didn't want people you know uh clergymen to freely go anywhere and say anything right so in a sense, I'm sympathetic to that kind of Protestant uh, development of this individual experience, um, this idea that of a freer discourse that's disconnected from a hierarchy. But there's all these drawbacks that emerge from that. And part of that is something that uh, de Tocqueville pointed out was civil society, even after the Revolutionary War, is already starting to hollow out because you're having some wealthy landowners, some wealthy property owners already um, changing civil society um, away from this petite bourgeois ideal. And I'm using, I know, petite bourgeois in an in anachronistic sense, like no one in the American colonies nor in the early United States called themselves petite bourgeois, but they did think of themselves as independent proprietors, as uh, people who became free through laboring, like uh, free labor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like so. Oh, go ahead. I feel no, like, I know, like I'm saying, like the French, like middle class and things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and it's kind of funny too comparing uh, French revolutionaries versus American revolutionaries because, like, this American revolutionaries have a few lawyers, kind of like the French revolutionaries, but they also have a lot of land surveyors, <laughs> which I find funny. Um, but yeah, you have these uh, petite bourgeois class, but um, over time, as classes start to develop with the development of manufacturing and also with the development of an increasingly grisly slave system in the South, um, this leads to, well, 1845, you have the foundation of the Southern Baptist Convention, right? Right. Um, the and that's over that's both a progressive and regressive split because the reason the southern baptist convention forms is because the northern baptists a lot of them abolitionists some of them just you know 
not having a particular stance, they're uneasy about having missionaries who own slaves. And so the Northern Baptists feel like they have to take a stand. And when they take that stand, the Southern Baptist kicks themselves out of their Baptist convention. So it's both a progressive and regressive tendency that moves history forward in a sense. So uh, Nathan, you and uh, Jim, uh, maybe I'm misinterpreting, but you seem to be suggesting that in, in earlier evangelical days, there, there was more of a kind of working class progressive movement behind some of, of these movements. I, I, am I correct on that? And, and if so, where, where do you think we, we've seen the transition uh, of evangelical movements being almost entirely appropriated by you know, far right-wing uh, political establishments? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that um, it is conceived as a republic of labor, but I would not say working class in the sense that um, s- statements by Benjamin Franklin, um, there's a good paper on this, on the political economy of uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, but there's an idea, we know about the uh, uh, Jefferson uh, ideal of the human farmer being the citizen of the republic, right? Yeah. And I feel like sometimes like you, you learn about that in high school, but you don't really get the fuller international context. The reason Jefferson thought that farming might be a better basis for a Republican form of government was not because he thought farming was just better uh, necessarily. He also thought it would prevent the emergence of wage uh, subservience. Uh, the development of the industrial classes that already existed in Britain, right? Because we have to remember the reason why a lot of immigrants are coming to the United States and getting their own land um, out west is to avoid wage slavery, what it comes to be called by the 1850s at least, right? So it, there is a progressive movement among evangelical tendencies in the first and second great awakening, but it's not because it's a working class movement necessarily. It's more because it's an ascendant, I would say progressive bourgeois society that has not yet developed two great competing classes, the proletariat and the larger bourgeoisie. Do you think another part of the rightward drift is the sort of decentralization and the destruction of like say a church bureaucracy where you're looking at say a televangelist church, you know, that church is on its own. It is not connected to any larger structure. It has control of its own facilities, but it is not beholden to any central authority where, so church doctrine is basically made up on the fly, Um, which I, you know, you kind of explained how that started out as a positive force at first, but do you think that is part of what enabled these churches to kind of grow out of nothing and evolve into what they are now? That's interesting. Like, it's definitely, so there is a theory. I don't know how true or accurate it might be. There's a lot of competing theories about why the United States stayed religious while Europe seemed to secularize. And that's a pretty loaded uh, statement. But one of the theories is that um, because the evangelical tendencies, but also 
non-evangelical mainline Protestant churches in the United States, uh, they never really dominated the states, unlike in old Europe, where you had the emergence from feudalism, a relationship between, well, full-blown state churches, right? Uh, right. And this goes all the way up to the uh, German Lutheran Church during the Nazi period. <laughs> the Lutheran Church is very connected to the German state. So, um, so there's a theory about that. And I wonder about this because socialists in the, by the early 20th century, like Eugene V. Debs, um, they aren't really part of a church network, but they still have to talk about or feel like they should talk about Protestant Christianity in an ecumenical sense. So um, on, you're right, like it, it makes um, religion much more mobile and it can become almost like market innovations sort of. Um, and that has a role in its staying power in the United States and probably in many places around the world uh, today, whether we're talking about um, China, Nigeria, Brazil, et cetera. What I don't you, know if that's a good answer. <laughs> no, you're, yeah, you're good. What would you describe as like, what's the period where we see the rise of like what we know as the evangelical movement now? The sort of like mm. non-denominational, like mega church type movement that most people are familiar with when it comes to like right-wing Christianity. Mm -hmm. I would definitely say the Niagara Conference in the, it's a, it's a, it's a decades long conference. Um, that's a good way, place to put it though. I mean, you can draw it back to uh, Nelson Darby. A, uh, he's from Ireland. He was touring in Europe. And I think, I'm not sure if he went to the United States, but he definitely had a big following in the U.S. And he provides a, uh, a really strange interpretation of biblical eschatology or, you know, prophecy of uh, dispensationalism that gives us uh, all these ideas of pre-tribulation. It's the basis for the Left Behind books in the 1990s, basically, those novels. Uh, very strange ideas of apocalypse. Um, so that's a good marker. So the Niagara Bible Conference was held annually from, I see, 1876 to 1897. And there are so many influential evangelicals and also what become known as fundamentalists by the 1910s that went to this conference and they start codifying what evangelicalism is. So I think that's a good place in the 1870s post-Civil War. Uh, and there's a lot of different reasons why we could speculate why that is. Yeah. Well, skipping, a, skipping ahead to kind of the present or at least the last you know 40 years um you know there there's obviously much less power invested in the church at least as far as it used to be uh but we've seen kind of an integration of, of the more powerful aspects of it into uh religious blocks uh in in in, in politics. I mean, what, what do you think? Uh, I mean, do you think, I guess this is more color commentary. I mean, do you, do you think for the large part it has been uh, good or bad for evangelical denominations to have become so highly 
politicized and to have, uh, you know, leaned so so predominantly on right wing. And you know, when I mean, do you think that this is about preserving their their religious uh, doctrine? Do you think that's more important than perhaps their uh, their, their class needs, their economic needs. Like, uh, I mean, do you feel like there has been kind of a, I guess the question I'm trying to get at is based on a, it was a book by Thomas Frank called uh, What Happened to Kansas? And it's the, the thesis essentially is that the, the right wing has kind of co-opted religion for the purpose of essentially getting middle Americans to vote against their interests because they're the party representing uh, religious evangelicalism. I mean, do, do you do you see something in that, or, or you know, I guess I would go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. I just want your thoughts on that generally. Well, um, I feel like whenever we talk about the religious right or evangelicalism in you know post nineteen sixties. Um, we almost uh, reify this entity called uh, the relig religious right. But at the same time, we have to remember that um, this isn't just like a, a camp, an ideologically consistent camp, and it's not cut off from the wider society. I'd say that um, um, it, it's part of the development of bourgeois society. And I'd also say that historically in the U.S. case, in the vast majority, probably almost all cases, um, yes, workers do attend church. Huge portions do at any one time. It varies depending upon uh, largely on economic developments. But uh, at the same time, though, all these churches are definitely middle class institutions, uh, middle class and even large, you know, larger uh, maybe millionaire and billionaire cases. But in the most part, like places in the red states, for example, um, most of the churches, rural or urban, kind of organize the interests of small and medium-sized business. And I think that's always been the case. I think that was true in, <laughs> I think it's, well, I think it, it's been kind of like that the since colonial times, right? Um, it changes because the rich get richer and the poor, you know, become more and more relatively poor relative to the rich. All right. So we lost the feed for a second there, but um, I guess, you know, I think one thing you can talk about when you talk about the uh, class character of the church changing and you, you did bring it up before you cut out was this sort of reaction to the 60s, especially by people who had benefited from the post-war boom, like the post-World War II middle class that had popped up in the suburbs thanks to like the GI Bill and things like that. So, I mean, do you think that's when this sort of real, when the American middle class was kind of, in, you know, made and then their reaction to the 60s, do you think this is kind of a result of the changing class and political character within the church? Yeah, I wonder a lot about the post-war economic boom and how it relates to religion, because if you look at um, statistics of people 18 to 29 years 
old and uh, how many of them are living with their parents. Um, it's climbing up through the 1900s till 1940. And it reaches a peak in 1940 where over 40% of these uh, 20-year-olds are living with a parent, right? And then by 1950, you have this massive economic boom. The rate of profit in the U.S. and internationally is restored. And the, the number of people who are entering their own nuclear families, getting married, et cetera, is accelerating through the 50s. And I'd say like going off the... Oh, can you still hear me? Yep, you're good. Okay, that's so strange. I, I would say like the peak of the nuclear family is about the early 60s. Um, at that point, only about 29% of people 18 to 29 years old are living with a parent, which means that most of those people who are living on their own are living uh, with like starting a family, basically, right? right. So what, what that means for politics, well, for uh, religious politics, but more specifically, um, uh, I guess, organized religion um, is people in nuclear families are more likely to attend church more frequently. Um, people in nuclear families, um, usually you can only stay in a stable nuclear family because you have a decent enough income. In the 50s and 60s, you have this unusual aberration where even proletarians um, start to join nuclear families as opposed to extended families. And a good way to compare this is looking at the Communist Manifesto in the late 1840s, where Marx writes that uh, capitalism is abolishing the bourgeois family. And Marx claims in the manifesto that um, the bourgeoisie may have their families, but the proletariat cannot have a bourgeois family. I think that's fascinating. We've forgotten about this in America and the developed countries because we, since the 19, late 40s onward, we keep thinking of proletariats as having these normal families that go to church, right? But yeah. that was unusual historically, right? So I think now, like in the 2010s, we're, we're returning to the historical norm where proletariat, they come from, quote unquote, broken families or unconventional families, whatever you want to call them, extended families, you know, which is more normal in the long run for proletarians. I think that, yeah, I don't think Marx quite predicted like the excesses of empire that would end up, you know, paying, especially with the competition between the Soviet Union and the United States, the amount that the middle class was paid out for a period of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, imperialism is part of it. At that point, the U.S. was the key investor in other countries' industrialization. Like the U.S. just had a whole bunch of surplus and everyone else's stuff was destroyed. Yeah, yeah. If you look at uh, per capita GDP for different countries relative to the U.S., during World War II, it just plummets. Like the U.S. has a way higher GDP per capita than the rest of the world you know, by the, yeah. by the 1950s, you know, it definitely says something that like after that boom kind of ended and we reestablished like Japan and Germany's economy, they became competitors pretty much right out of the gate. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that contributes long-term to the 1970s stagflation 
and longer term uh, secular stagnation, right? Which right. is more the norm. I mean, that was the norm in the 19 aughts to 1930s, right? Yeah, uh, like there was it was invented. Exactly, exactly. You have consumer society. There's a there's a crisis. The 1920s has eerie similarities to the 1960s in the sense that there is a difficulty in producing profit because the rate of profit is declining because of automation and international trade is driving that automation and it produces a crisis, crises of profitability, right? So the 1920s does have its economic boom, but it's, it's a ticking time bomb. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It couldn't have lasted the way it was built, but uh, yeah, I think the thing is too, like after, you know, as you said, the sixties going into the seventies as like, civil society ends up becoming crushed you know especially going into like reagan and stuff too like unions and things like that the normal uh sort of proletariat and all and middle class you know community centers kind of become smashed and have their membership you know totally ravaged by just the increased alienation under capitalism and do you think that's where the church kind of steps in and really starts to cement itself is like the 70s and 80s is like, this is the community center at this point. This is what remains. That's that's tricky because like, if you look at, um, this is a bad proxy for quote unquote working class, but it's the best they got. If you have um, look at the uh, church membership rate and also the church attendance rate of people without a four-year degree, it's much higher in the 1970s than it is by the 2010s. And so what you see over that period, and lots of people have already identified this. Charles Murray saw it. Um, this conservative uh, Catholic named, uh, I think, Tim Carney, who works at American Conservative, he sees it, where the working class is dropping out of churches. Um, part of that has to do with um, decreased uh, total compensation, uh, longer working hours. Um, there's a paper called uh, No Money, No Honey, No Church. And what the paper shows since the 1970s is of course you know um on the one hand you have uh workers working longer hours they have less time to actually engage in church on the one hand um, on the other hand because workers are having trouble reproducing their own standard of living it's harder and harder for them to keep nuclear families over time um and so that is also a negative factor in their church attendance right so no money, no honey, no church. And that's it's just getting worse over time from the perspective of church membership, uh, churches and what, you know. Nathan, I was going to ask you a question about uh, science. And, and, you know, traditionally, people have viewed religion uh, and science as split, even though uh, there's plenty of scientists who are religious and plenty of religious people who are scientific in their methodology. Um, certain religions have, have embraced it more. For example, you know, one of the, for many, many years, the greatest uh, astronomical observatory in the world was the Vatican Church and the Catholics, uh, Catholic Vatican invested very heavily 
and in incredible uh, telescopes and, and cataloging of worlds. As uh, made famous in Assassin's Creed, which yeah. I don't know if any of you, anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the bad oh, yeah, joke, dude. sorry, James. It's, yeah, I yeah. know, I played them all, man. And, uh, <laughs> you know, also even to a certain extent, uh, one of the popes, I think it was probably the more recent one, he even, even said, you know, we're open to the idea of there being extraterrestrial civilizations out there. They're all part of the splendor of God, so to speak. And just in a number of ways, I think, you know, obviously, I personally, as many do, have some problems with Catholics throughout history and Catholic doctrine and whatnot. That's not yeah, yeah, yeah. my point here. That's not my point. But, but, but Catholics have been more receptive to the integration of science into their doctrine, whereas other uh, religions and uh, denominations within Christianity specifically uh, have not been. Um, and so, and we're getting to a point now where we're seeing, you know, during the Bush years, they wouldn't even let scientists use stem cells because they thought it was, uh, uh, you know, voiding religious doctrine and, and there's countless examples of that i mean do, do you see that as as something that is going to start or i mean do you do you think in the future we're going to see by almost necessity an embrace of of, of more science from from some of these more evangelical groups if for if for no other reason than just brand better branding um better outreach well, um, uh, with the question of science and religion and this imagined uh, tension, I think a lot of that, that evangelicals don't really necessarily relate it to, and a lot of liberals on the other side don't really make this connection that I think that's driven by the rural-urban divide where there is a gradient where a lot of the evangelical institutions and the large portions of the evangelical population are in more rural cities and rural areas like in where I'm at in Oklahoma or um, so there is a weird urban rural divide. And this is not to say that evangelicals are not in uh, cities, they are. Like if we look at the 1920s uh, Anti-Evolution League, uh, three of the main guys are living in cities. You have J. Frank Norris in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. You have William Bell Riley, who was like talking about the dangers of uh, Judeo-Bolshevik Darwinism mm -hmm. uh, from uh, Minneapolis. And you got uh, John Roach Stratton, who's in New York City. So the, the leaders of the anti-evolution movement in the 1920s are urban, but they're basically urban leaders trying to lead people in like Tennessee and more rural areas, right? So there is a feedback loop of evangelical um, institutions and in cities and, and in rural areas, but how they kind of do their politics and culture war is by sort of like playing off of rural idiocy as Marx and Engels use the term rural idiocy. And I don't mean that by saying like people who live in rural areas like me are idiots it's just that there is a kind of like total social problem where rural areas tend to uh de-socialize people in certain ways that cities don't right and part of that has to do with um you it's harder for 
rural people, they don't have, they have less connection to like scientific institutions to one extent. They have uh, less contact with uh, people with university degrees, specialists, you know. I think a lot of that is going on um, still, behind they, the scenes. They still use science in their daily life, like all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm with you, man. I mean, I, like you, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Arkansas. I grew up, but I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is, you know, more urban, metropolitan, you know, about 275, actually more like 400,000 people, uh, you know, and, and yeah, there was a huge difference between, you know, obviously the, the city and, and the out, outer country areas, but uh, yeah, it, 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 there just seems to me to be a big, big divide between, between the embrace of, of science and a kind of reactionary, a lot of religious denominations are just kind of a reactionary uh, cringe toward toward science, even though they they know they have to use it to use the internet or to to basically drive to church, they have to use science. But you know, there's there's definitely seems to be a reluctance to, you know, even accept like the word of scientists on vaccines as opposed to say, oh, well, maybe God, God will just fix this for us. Um, but and the only real Protestants are the Amish. <laughs> That's, In a way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are the only true Protestants. <laughs> um, Jake is actually a snake handler, so don't believe anything he tells you, for one thing. I didn't and even really have a question there. Jim, go, go ahead. I was, uh, I'll I was say that shooting off with the mouth there. Well, I'll say for one, I know like the Vatican has a space program because somebody's going to convert whatever the fuck is up there. And it's going to be us or like the Mormons. So I can oh, tell God. you why the Vatican has a space program. Uh, <laughs> space Mormons. Have a better Jesus, though. That, that would be. That would well, be yeah. The Vatican's not going to. That's not going to stop them from trying. But um, Mormons would have a space program. Yeah, they, um, they're they organized. Yeah, yeah. Like they have a, their whole uh, salvation theory is pretty interesting. But yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah, they're very organized. I mean, they, they you know, they're a real tight clique, but that's for a whole other day talking yeah. about the Latter day Saints. Do you think um, you kind of see this trend in like the trad movements, like the trad cats and like people who are like going to the Orthodox Church and stuff like that? There's a sort of disillusionment with. I guess with like neoliberal capitalism, you know, and this kind of goes through like Trump supporters and things like that, where there's like this big kind of rejection, although they don't know why and can't explain it. There's a rejection of this sort of neoliberal order. And there's almost a realization in like the trad cat circles that like capitalism is what destroys like the nuclear family and things like that. Is there any strain similar to that in like evangelical communities, like planned communities or anything? Man, that's a great question. Um, like going back to that um, Catholic conservative, uh, Tim Carney, he wrote that book, uh, Alienated America. And what's strange about that is he, he kind of blames working class people for not going to church. And therefore, it's their fault that Trump got elected. Like that's his argument in the book is like, if only you working class people went to church more, you know. Um, it's kind of a mirror image of uh, J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegies oh or, yeah. you know 
Um, so separation from society, I see that in Catholics, um, the, the, the male king, um, Paul Vig Vigore, I don't know how to say his last name. He was a, a Catholic. He was friends with Paul Weyrich. Uh, he was part of the Southern strategy. Um, in 1990s, he has a letter to conservatives where he says, you know what, we need, we just need to drop out of society, you know? That's um, what Rod yeah. Dreher did too, Exactly. Isn't yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say, Rod Dreher, yeah. So they keep saying it, but they never do it, you know? Uh, Glenn Beck wanted to form, didn't he want to form like a town? Oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is yeah, there's always some wild shit. And I don't know. Well, we got you here. Like, you are ex-evangelical. What was your... I, I, we'll go into all of our histories, I guess. Because like I said, Jake's a fucking snake handler. I mean, oh, man. What's your personal history? I mean, what you know, tell us about, like, your experience in, like, one of these churches. So I am pretty weird. Uh, it's not <laughs> just that I read all the Left Behind books. Through middle school and high school, I uh, I read most of the uh, Left Behind for Kids. I was reading uh, Prophecy in the News with uh, Gary Stearman. Um, it wasn't just that. I, I thought I would become like a biblical apologist of some sort because I was into history, right? So I don't know how I found it. I found an early 1960s PhD thesis called Revised Chronology. Um, it was written for an evangelical college in Southern California called Ambassador University. And so Revised Chronology was basically, I, I wasted a few years on this. And I ever since, I've always thought I'm a bit of a crackpot. But the goal of revised chronology was to shove ancient Middle Eastern history um, within 6,000 years, right? Oh, this is, yeah. Really crazy, but the, it's worse than that because according to James Archbishop, James Usher's uh, calculations in the, what was it, 1500s? I can't remember, um, a while ago. <laughs> Uh, the, the global flood happened in uh, 2340 or 50 BC. So you have to find a way to smash ancient Egyptian history and ancient Mesopotamian history into to after 2500 BC, right? Yeah, it's really popular with like Russians, like Russian nationalists. Yes. Yeah. And also British Israelists. Okay. Yeah. You know, those guys who say that uh, the British are descended from uh, the lost tribes <laughs> yeah. of Israel. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't need to go. So, the history of that denomination and that PhD thesis is fascinating. And what's so weird about it is the, that denomination was probably as wealthy as Oral Roberts and Billy Graham but we know way less about them now in the, through the 1970s. Like they're huge. They're all over rural areas. You know, it's nuts. But anyway, so that's my background. Um, I, I was a Baptist, Southern Baptist. I wasn't part of this denomination. I didn't even know about the denomination, but I believed in their historiography. So well, what, what are you now? Uh, agnostic. All right, cool. Unchurched, I guess, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why Jim was calling me a snake handler, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've never been 
religious. I mean, I, I would say I have a spiritual side, I guess. My, my, my problem has always been just a very uncomfortable approach to just this idea of, of hell and just uh, I, I've always had a deep problem with with people believing that a, a massive amount of people other than them are going to burn in hell forever just for not believing the same thing they do and I guess you know my love for science also factors in because when you, when you look at the fact that there are you know hundreds of billions of galaxies each with trillions of stars in them. We're talking about a universe that is so incomprehensibly vast that, you know, while what's going on here is certainly important, we're certainly not the, the focal point of the universe in, in any way, uh, you know. And so for me, it's hard to reconcile certain things like a, a savior coming here just to save Earth's people. Is this, is this also going to be like, you know, in on other planets where other species are, is there going to be a savior that goes there? Is that going, you know, will that be an alien Jesus? Will that be going to the same heaven? And I guess, I guess I kind of am confused by what, what would have to be a kind of metaphysical intergalactic law going on that, that is tracing different religions and God's relationship to different saviors. That's more the sci-fi element of it. When it gets right down to it, I've always, I've just never been able to embrace this. I, I think there's a lot of great values in, in religion, uh, but I've never been able to accept this idea of a hell. I, and and, and I, I, that's really where I just, I, I can't get past it. That's exactly what happened to me. Like I, I didn't leave evangelicalism because or, or my personal relationship with Jesus which I you know I believed I had uh, out of a logical argument it was more like I don't like imagining hell and the end times almost every other day yeah and I just eventually I was like I can't live like this you know it wasn't rational it was like a emotive intuitive thing is like something's yeah. wrong about this hell idea no good for you man that's 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 I think that's a, that's awesome because I think yeah like it it doesn't it didn't it ultimately just strike you as weird to believe that like half the people on Earth are gonna you know like for example like a, a serial killer could could kill people and then repent on his deathbed and go to heaven but the people he killed who did not accept Jesus and so they went to hell I mean these these are just issues that like I I know they sound kind of specious and, and and you know almost kind of vulgar bringing them up but like but you know these are questions that these are legitimate questions to ask as to you know uh, this kind of framework of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell yeah yeah jake you basically describe like gnosticism where there's like some universal god that we don't understand well, yeah, I, I would say, I mean, there's, there's definitely, you know, whatever the universe is, is definitely God. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no doubt that there's some incredible force that's governing things or governing the laws of nature to some extent. The question is whether we can have a personal relationship with that. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the biggest questions in the universe. And, no, yeah, only the Pope can. 
We all right. agree. <laughs> we all agree. The gym, give us, give us your take, man. No, I. What about? I mean, <laughs> the birds and the bees, dude. I think that. Talk to us about and this. Well, this is biased, obviously, but I think that a huge part of, like I said, I I think I do genuinely think like the only real Protestants are the um the Amish or like the Mennonites at this point, because I don't think that most Protestant denominations stick to a big Lutheran idea, which was uh, the idea of like an adult baptism, which you and I talked about in the intro, the idea of like adult baptism and the adult choice of coming into a church. Um, I don't, you know, every other church has basically copied the Catholic model of just bombarding your children from birth at this point. It doesn't matter what age they get baptized at. Um, I think that American Catholics are mostly Protestant too, if I'm honest, you know, so it's the idea of the personal relationship and the sort of self-centeredness of it. And I've talked about this with Nathan, the sort of Calvinism aspect where like, uh, like with Q, you know, it's with people who think like, oh, I know the truth. I've been preordained with this special knowledge and therefore how I live my life is righteous. And right, yeah, that's a dangerous way of thinking. Yeah. yeah, there's that's a big thought pattern with like the Protestant idea, especially like the American Protestant idea of the personal relationship with God is it's taken in that direction a lot of times where it's I have this knowledge that others don't possess, which makes me superior. Right. And 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 it has echoes of not only, yeah, QAnon Q like conspiracy theories, but also kind of the more selfish individualistic yeah, it, way that it, Americans run with things. It doesn't just make you superior. It makes you justified in whatever social position you hold. You right. don't have to feel guilt over your social position because you know God, you talk to God, and therefore your position is ordained by God. That's like the Calvinist thing, you know, like you are blessed because you are a pre-chosen holy person. So right, I'm, right. I'm, I'm curious if, if uh, Nathan, so you, so you kind of transitioned out of a more evangelical, you said you're ex-evangelical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when, when, could you talk about that a little bit more? I, I find that fascinating. Um, like, was that a difficult transition? Like, did you have to kind of excommunicate yourself? Did you lose friendships over that? Uh, no, it, it works out pretty smoothly, I suppose. So like through middle school and high school, I'm a fundamentalist evangelical, um, pretty devout. Um, I'm reading this revised chronology thinking I need to do go into like ancient Middle Eastern history stuff. And I'm pretty naive at this point too. Um, so I have to give myself some credit, but also this was like batshit insane at the same time, you know, um, reading this guy's PhD thesis from the sixties and thinking it has the answer to ancient history. Um, but like over time, especially in high school, it kind of wore me down. Whereas like how many people I know are going to suffer infinitely, you know? Right. And that, that can wear on someone if they take it too seriously. But again, you know, there's plenty of evangelicals who don't worry too much about that, you know, like, for example, my, well, I, I, you know, as for some reason, 
I don't know why it just wore me down. And eventually I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to try being a Christian agnostic, right? That's how it started senior year, high school, going into college. And then eventually I was just, uh, maybe I'm just agnostic, you know? I, that's, I, I, I have respect for that, man. Seriously. That, cause I always wonder how like emotionally intelligent uh, Christians deal with that. Like one of my, one of my best friends from childhood was a hard, hardcore Christian. And we used to have these debates and I could tell that it really bothered him that part of his belief was that, you know, like he knew I was an atheist at that point. I'm not even an atheist anymore, but uh, like it, I could tell that it wore on him and bothered him that he believed that one of his close friends was going to go to hell. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I experienced that, you know, with my friends back then, you know, what was your position on Israel? Did you think all the Jews had to go there for it to get blown up? Oh, uh, yeah, that was I'm my right. stance. It's a legitimate <laughs> yes. question. It's a funny belief. It's, it's a it's funny correct. belief that evangelicals support like Zionism yeah. because they're right. like, well, if you guys all go there, God will come back and yeah. you'll die. You'll go to hell. You'll die and you'll go to hell. But thank I, you. I read John Hagee. Um, yeah. I read those neoconservative evangelicals. Um, and that what's weird about that is you have some of the like Christian uh, dispensationalists become Zionists before some of the, before uh, Theodore uh, Herzl. Like some of the Christian dispensationalists are among the first Zionists. Like even John Nelson Darby is saying Israel's probably gonna become a state again way back in the 1840s. 40s and that's just a crazy coincidence but it's just a coincidence there's nothing divine about it you know <laughs> yeah it's yeah yeah it's a very odd belief and it's it seems like israel really loves this idea like permeating in american society we're like yeah we'll take the money to get everyone back to israel and produce propaganda for israel but like yeah we don't we don't care that you think most of us will be going to hell in like the end times battle. It really, it's really hard for me, even though I know what it's like to be an evangelical, I, or, you know, previously, I don't know how they relate their politics to it. And I, back then, like, yeah, I was a Christian Zionist, but I wasn't like, we should keep the settlements in the West Bank like right. I didn't I didn't think we should infringe on people's rights because at the same time you know we live in supposedly an American Republic um I, I I think a lot about Tim LaHaye the author of the left behind books because on the <laughs> one hand like I was talking with uh, James about this like on the one hand Tim LaHaye has a totally apocalyptic view where there's going to be a seven-year period of global government and then God's going to wreck shit up but Somehow, also, Tim LaHaye is, became one of the most powerful people in the American right. Like, he's, in the early 80s, he founded the Council for National Policy, which is possibly the most powerful right-wing political group today. Possibly. It, you know, it's debatable. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, why, why are you doing this, Tim LaHaye? Like, why do you care? <laughs> We're going to die. <laughs> Another thing why do you care if people have abortions? Because like, according to his rules, 
if those souls die prenatally, then they go to heaven. But if they get a chance to grow up and then they become uh, consenting yeah. adults, they go to hell. So like, I would want more abortions and just stay out of it. <laughs> that, and that, and it, for one thing, that's anti-Lutheran. That's bullshit. Because the whole idea <laughs> of Luther was you baptize people when they can consent. The baby is going to hell. That's their rules. I didn't make them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you should definitely, we'll have to do a fucking movie episode with Left Behind and you'll have to come back. I think Jake had another question. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, Nathan, earlier you were talking about some like Marxist elements of, of evangelicalism. I was wondering, I mean, because I, I know obviously our show is called The Left is Dead. Uh, what? Jim, uh, Jim, Jim is a. Wait, you're saying uh, the left is dead? Yeah, Jim is. What am a, I doing? Is a, a, a unapologetic uh, Marxist, and I am an apologetic Marxist, but I, but I am one. But so I, I was wondering, are, 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 do you identify with those kind of politics? And more importantly, if so, I mean, I think you've worked sort of touching on this before, but more in the abstracts. And I'm asking you more, just one on one. Like, do you see a way moving into the future where um, kind of Marxist working class uh, progressive movements could start to get more of the support of evangelical religious communities? Is that something that you think is possible? My suspicion is that um the 1950s through 70s um, situation where you had a large portion of the working class, both in nuclear families and going to church was totally unusual. And that's in the past now. I think we're in a period of, uh, in the US and globally of uh, stagnation like we had in you know the earlier 20th century. Um, and because of that, um, we already see it in divorce statistics. Nuclear families is mo are more for like people of upper income, property owners, et cetera. While people like me who don't have, you know, I come from um, like my father was kind of like a small business owner in the nonprofit context. I come from a petite bourgeois background. I'll just call that. But my, my extended family are also teachers, so maybe labor aristocratic, but either way, I don't have private property. I'm not expecting to have a nuclear family. Like I'd have to work my butt off to do it, you know? And a lot of my friends are like that. You know, we're like, um, we're friends that help each other out. We aren't in families. A lot of the people, like friends I know that got married and had kids, like they're in divorce proceedings, you know? I'm in a very proletarian background. So I don't see the church having a role in this. Like at this point, I, and I think for most of the US history, I would say churches have played a reactionary role. Um, there was a, a socialist in the early 1900s called uh, Clarence Miley. They wrote a book called Puritanism. Um, they're roughly in the Marxist terrain. And they wrote a very short essay in 1907 in the International Socialist Review called Why the Working Man is Without a Church. And I kind of mostly agree with Clarence there, is uh, I don't think churches are really proletarian institutions and they never really have been. Even in their progressive, more progressive stage before the Civil War, 
they were still back then for like small farmers, people who own, you know, property, right? And that's not to say that we're, we'll still, for in the future, we'll still have millions of workers in churches, um, especially immigrant communities. Um, there are moments when churches play an important role or mosques or whatever. Like, for example, I think one of the reasons that um, the East African immigrant community, who's majority Muslim in the, um, I think Minnesota was able to get Amazon to negotiate with them was because they had a common immigrant Islamic culture, right? They were in the same boat for multiple reasons. I think religion played a positive role there, but it's, those are outliers in the US context, you know? So I don't see a future for the church for, for the proletariat. I don't think the proletariat needs a church. I definitely think like the, you know, quote unquote, progressive strand of religion is visibly in the minority. You know, more urban churches may be more liberal about things. And, uh, you know, even some like urban, like Catholic churches are more liberal about you know, gay members of the church and things like that compared to Catholic churches in Europe or some you know, countrysides in Europe and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I agree, the, yeah. the progressive forces are definitely much smaller. And, you know, like you said, it, it can have some benefits, this being like the last community center, but for the most part, it's harmful. And I, I guess that's really, you know, that was going to be my last question is what direction do you think this is going in? So I guess it's kind of a good place to wrap up. Uh, I get, thank you for joining us again, man. Yeah, it's been a good time. Yeah, and you know when you launch another project, come back and we'll talk something else. We'll write a history yeah. of the Mormons together. Good stuff, Nathan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a good talk. So we're back with me and Jake. Huh. That was interesting, eh? Yeah, eh? Yeah. We were talking, uh, I don't know, we'll definitely have to have more on this because this is a big ass subject and it's obviously, this whole fucking country is a, I don't know how, to, it's a fucking religious like trance experience. You know, this, there's like a religious psychosis that runs this whole fucking place. Yeah, I agree. And uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting. I it, I didn't know if we were going to get into our personal beliefs there or whatever, but uh, I, I it was interesting to me that he was a ex-evangelical. And uh, so, yeah, that was interesting, man. I mean, I, yeah, there's... You know, there's a lot of different ways we can talk about religion in America, so it's it's a pretty big topic. But I, I would say that it's. Uh, I thought it was interesting what he said about how, you know, church, church ideology, church goers have traditionally been, you know, uh, prioritized property ownership, and so that he thinks that that negates the chance of there being a kind of Marxist underbelly to to religion, which is sad, but probably true.
Yeah, I think he's probably right, but I think at the same time, you'll also see, like, you may see a further, like, secularization and decline in, like, confidence in the church as people's material conditions continue to get worse. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, why, can, way- why continue going to, like, and I know people will do it even past the point of reason, but why continue going to, like, a prosperity gospel, like, mega church as your, like, well, material conditions deteriorate? One would have also thought the just proliferation of uh, revelations about priests molesting kids would have done that, but apparently that's it's not yeah. enough. But yeah, well, that's the Catholic Church, right? But, but that's and that's what evangelicals use to like prove that the Catholic Church is secretly Satanist. Yeah, but but I, they do it too. The Protestants do it too. And, yeah. And, oh, absolutely. Like, so many Protestant. Preachers are, have been outed as just, just absolute hypocrites, and it's just it just doesn't seem to bother them because that's that, that's part of part of the built-in gamification of religion and just specifically Christianity is that you can make a mistake no matter how bad it is, and then you you get your get out of jail free card from Jesus, and you can wash the slate clean and repent your sin, and so it's it's, it's almost a perfectly calibrated to people that want to talk a big game but make a lot of mistakes oh yeah that's what i mean it is set to like fit your lifestyle you know what i mean you can do whatever the hell you want because you can just be sorry for it right at least catholics you have to go to a booth (laughs) and say sorry you know you can't just fucking do it over your morning cup of coffee yeah but I, I don't I don't know. It's it's a weird fucking it's so counterintuitive because like they're not really like offering anything in these people's behavior. But I definitely think like, yeah, they're committing just the same abuses as the Catholic Church. And they'll point at the Catholic Church to be like, well, it's systemic. But the difference is like they don't have any central system or like central accountability or like bureaucracy, you know, like it doesn't it's yeah, so their pedophilia is decentralized and their child abuse is decentralized. That doesn't make it, you know, just because their child abuse is more libertarian, that doesn't make it okay. Yeah, they're obviously doing it. Yeah, it's it it it's happened and it's happened a lot, and that's really all that we need to know. Well, it's interesting. I think we'll probably dive into religion as we go more. Not necessarily religion, but. Yeah, yeah, there, there's more to cover here, but this, this was a good entry point for us here. Yeah, and I think we'll definitely have Nathan back in the future here. Yeah. He's got a good perspective, and he studied a lot of, like, not just evangelicalism, but a lot of, about religion. And, I, you know, I have good conversations with him. And we're definitely doing a movie night at some point, so. Sounds good. All right, man, well, this has been The Left is Dead. Uh, you want to tell where they can find us, pal? Yeah, find us on all the social media networks, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just look up Left is Dead. You can find us, find our old episodes. We'll make sure to subscribe, review, rate, whatever. Eat eat food as you're listening to it and then digest that food. And PayPal me.